Stand with me now for the reading of our scripture for today. From the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to the which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Thank you. You may be seated. All right, let's pray again. Father, we thank you that we do have a Redeemer. We thank you that he has done great things and we thank you God that there is no one no thing that compares to him give us today God through your word which tells us about him give us a clear vision of the greatness of our Savior and may we worship him in spirit and truth as your Holy Spirit applies this word to our hearts we ask it in Jesus name amen now I'm going to ask you a question as we start that I, you don't know the answer to this question and it's a, I wouldn't say it's a rhetorical question but I think it's a, a, a thought-provoking question. What would you do if an angel showed up right here, right now? Well, if scripture is any good indicator, and it is by the way, you'd probably be freaked the heck out. Kids don't say freaked the heck out. <laughs> Um, from what we know in the Bible, angels are awesome creatures who have caused even the most stout-hearted people to fall on their faces when they show up. Um, and, and like sometimes the description, I mean, six wings, what's that all about? There's one passage where it says he had eyes all around. It's like, is he a big eyeball? What's, we don't know, what, you know exactly. And sometimes they just look like people. But let me ask you this question. How awesome would it be if you had your own angel that you could walk around with all the time, talk to, 
send to do things for you, take care of your light work if you wanted them to, you know what I'm saying? That'd be pretty okay, don't you think? Do you want an angel? Sign me up, yo, right? I'll take an angel. Angels are actually kind of, uh, I don't know, we, we don't talk about angels, right? I mean, who? anybody seen an angel? If you have, don't raise your hand, because I mean, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I've never seen an angel, I don't think. Maybe, you know, maybe angels have protected us. Maybe, I, I don't know. Guardian angels and uh, sweet, precious moments little figurine angels, you know, and harps and I don't, swords, and I don't know. We don't know a lot about angels, and we don't talk a lot about angels. I think I'd like to have one. Maybe I do have one. I don't know. But, in this passage today that we're going to look at, it's going to talk about angels, but the point ain't angels. We said last week as we started Hebrews that the focus of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus to everything and everybody. And what's going to happen today is Jesus is better than angels. There's, there's the sermon. Y'all can go home if you want to. But, um, but let's dig into this passage to see what we're talking about. So again, verses 3 and 4, which he, is the, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So again, we went through those first three glorious verses last week, which served to give us a grand intro into this marvelous message that we call Hebrews, the whole book, basically. And it was so, so packed, so good, for sure. Well, today we find ourselves at the end of that thought and starting into another one. We kind of transitioned here in verse 4, really. And we start today um, by moving from Jesus being seated at God's right hand, which is where we finished last week, and we move on from there to Him being compared to and seen as better than angels. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So let's roll this way, since it's rolling this way. The writer says that Jesus had become as much superior to angels. Now we'll explore the thought of, of Jesus becoming superior to angels after we look at what we're talking about when we say angels. And we are just all over the map here, right? I mean, I don't know where your mind goes when you think angel. Because in a room of however many people are here we all probably have a different picture of an angel. If I say angel, maybe you're thinking about, you know, I don't know. We, we, we're just all over the map here, right? We go in our culture, even in, even in church culture, I think, we go from not believing in them at all. I mean, I've never seen one, so how could it be true? And then we, then we go to the place where we think that our dead loved ones become angels and watch over us after their passing. They don't, by the way. And then we, maybe we see him as fierce warriors and we try to figure out what in the world Ezekiel and Isaiah and the Apostle John describe with six wings and eyes all over and all kinds of crazy stuff. And the Bible does say a whole lot of different things about angels. But 
What we want to focus on here today in this passage is not the fact that there are angels. The author says it unapologetically. He doesn't say, let me explain to you that there are angels and let me tell you why. He just says, Jesus is better. And that's what we're going to focus on. We're not going to focus on angels a lot. Um, The word angel means messenger, envoy, one sent. So let's start there. Not one sent like a penny. One who is sent. There we go. Uh, So let's start there. We definitely see these beings, these angels, being messengers all through the Bible. God sends these angels to carry messages to people that carry tremendous weight to those who receive them. If an angel brings you a message, it's a pretty big deal, right? But there's a commonly held belief among the Jews, even today, that even the law of God, those Ten Commandments and all that stuff that Moses brought down from the top of Mount Sinai, there is a common belief among the Jewish population then and now that that law was delivered by angels. There's three passages in the New Testament that show this was a pretty much accepted thought and mindset by the masses of these Jewish folk. Acts 7, 52 and 53. This is Stephen talking to the, uh, the people who are about to stone him. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And again, he's talking to a Jewish audience, purely Jewish audience. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as, look, delivered by angels and did not keep it. Galatians 3, 19. Why then the law, Paul says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place, the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And then finally Hebrews 2.2, which we'll actually talk about next week. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, dot, 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 we'll stop there. So these three passages all show that the common thought, the common belief, and again, held by the Jewish community was angels delivered the law to the people of God. But now, if you go back to the story on Mount Sinai, which we're not going to go there today, it says that God showed up, the mountain thundered and roared and burned with fire, and that Moses spoke with God face to face, and that the tablets were literally written by the finger of God. But commentator I.H. Marshall says, although the presence of angels at Mount Sinai is not mentioned in the Old Testament, except in... The Septuagint, and we'll get to that in a minute, in Deuteronomy 33.2, the Septuagint says there were angels there. He goes on to say, It was nevertheless a fixed part of Jewish tradition and was accepted by early Christians. And that being that there were, there were angels at Mount Sinai, even though it's not mentioned in our Old Testament. End of quote, by the way. Now, this is pretty important to grasp, okay? Because we have to bring it in this conversation about this passage today. The Jews definitely held angels in very high regard in general. But hearing this and what we're seeing in Hebrews today means that they saw angels as the literal messengers of the law of God. Now, the Jews loved and lived by that law, so whoever brought that law, which ultimately came from God, But whoever brought that law had a pretty high place of importance. So that puts these angels 
in a very esteemed place in God's workings in the Jewish mind. They associate the angels with the law. And of course, like humans do, when we reverence something or someone, we start to worship it, don't we? Paul references angel worship in Colossians 2.18. I'm going to read 17 and 18. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, he tells the people in Colossae, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So I read that so that we can know that the reverence of angels as a very important part in the plan and processes of God was pervasive and pretty much a given in the Jewish community to the point that some were even worshiping angels. Okay, that's very important to understand our passage today. Now, couple that with an unclear picture of who or what Jesus was in the plan of God to these Jewish people, and you have a really clear opportunity to misappropriate the places of angels and the place of Jesus in the Jewish culture. There were scores and scores of opinions about who this Jesus was after He left earth. Even, even while He was on the earth, we see this. Jesus asks, now when the Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man, me, am, is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So that's why Jesus is on the earth. Now imagine he dies as they see they see him die. He's buried, they see him buried. He is resurrected. They don't necessarily know that, even though it's proclaimed. They didn't see him. Jesus revealed himself to who he wanted to reveal himself to. He didn't have a big public ministry in like a, a Billy Graham crusade type thing. He's like, look y'all, I'm alive. He revealed himself to the people he wanted to reveal himself to. So there was a lot of debate. And remember, the, the, the Romans came up with a story that somebody came and stole his body. So imagine the unclear picture of who Jesus was after his resurrection and ascension. And the Jewish people are going... He really was just kind of a troublemaker. But man, he did some cool stuff. Maybe he was an angel. Very, very, very possible. Well, I'm sure it was going on. Let me say that. I can't say it from Scripture, but I'm sure it was going on. Uh, history is pretty clear that the public was vastly divided on who this post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, post-ascension Jesus really was. And... Surely some had pegged him either as an angel or maybe not even on par with angels. So the writer of Hebrews is starting here after that grand glorious entrance. He's starting here to show that beyond doubt and scripturally, which we'll see a lot of by the way, a lot of Old Testament quotations, he's going to show that Jesus was not an angel but was in fact and is in fact far superior to angels. And the first point he makes is that the name Jesus has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Does that mean that Jesus is a better name than Gabriel or Michael or something? <coughs> now he's going to spend the next ten verses showing that Jesus is called Son, that Jesus is called God, and that Jesus is called Lord. And he's going to show through that God's favor toward him, toward Jesus, in handling Jesus' enemies. And that's superior, far superior to those who are called messengers. So that's kind of the layout of where we're going here. 
And he's going to do it primarily through Old Testament scriptures in general and the Psalms most specifically. So we'll start in verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews 1. For, the writer says, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. So for, that's a conclusive statement. So Jesus has inherited a superior name to angels. For, because, take for example, this. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now something that I want you to do if you're taking notes, or if you've got something on your device that you can take notes, write down these psalm references. That's going to be your homework. Your homework! Do it at home, when you're at home, between now and next Sunday. Psalm 2-7 is the first quote. And Psalm 89, 26-27 is the second quote. And what do these two passages show? Well, they show that Jesus is called God's Son. To which of the angels has God ever said things like this? You're my son, today I have begotten you. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And the answer to that question is, to none of the angels has God ever said those things. The angels are God's creations. They are his servants. They're not equal with God. They are not co-eternal with him. We talked about the Holy Spirit. We believe that he is co-eternal with the Father and the Son. Angels are not co-eternal. Angels had a beginning. God created them. So, God did not say these things from Psalm 2 or Psalm 89. He didn't say that to any angels or about any angels. But He did say it to and about Jesus. Which makes Jesus' name superior, much superior to that of angels. And then there in verse 6, He says, And again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, Let all God's angels worship Him. Again, that was Psalm 89, 26, and 27. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The first two were, this is Psalm 97.7. Write that down. Type that in. Whatever you do. Let all God's angels worship Him. Psalm 97.7. Now note that these verses, and again, if you're reading your Old Testament as a good uh, Jewish Hebrew person would, you are seeing these verses talking about who? They're not seeing it as Jesus. They're seeing it as God. Okay? And the writer of Hebrews is saying that these verses that the Jewish mind sees as talking about God are talking about God and that they apply to Jesus. Hence, Jesus, the capital S-O-N Son, like we saw and said last week, therefore Jesus is God. And again, let me be very clear, any message, any teaching, any religion that does not teach that Jesus Christ is God is not biblical. It's a cult. It's messed up somewhere. If Jesus isn't God, I'm going to hell. And so the writer of Hebrews is making sure that that the Hebrews he's writing to understand that those verses that apply to God apply to Jesus because Jesus is God. That's the reasoning of the writer. 
And also note the word um, begotten back in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son today, I have begotten you. That's a big word, okay? Begotten infers a transfer or a sharing of life. Jesus was not created. He was begotten. You're like, well, that's a difference. There are volumes written on this word begotten. Most of which are focused on the very recognizable use of it in John 3.16 as the King James translates it. What? That whoever would believe it, that God so loved the world that He gave His only what? Begotten. Only begotten. Okay? And that, that two-word phrase, only begotten, is one Greek word and it's monogenes, like mono. Anybody ever have mono? It's awful. Don't chew gum that other people have chewed. Let's give you mono. <laughs> Eighth grade me didn't know that. Anyway. Mono, G-E-N-E-S. Monogenes. Monogenes is how it's pronounced. And that's only begotten. And it is translated as only begotten, only an only child. And it means single of its kind. Only. And it's used of Christ denoting the only begotten Son of God. How many sons... Did God beget? One. The only begotten Son of God is Jesus. Now that's important again because God, listen, 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 listen. God did not create Jesus. Jesus was not created. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Father, Son, and Spirit, the one God, the one God is eternal. That means the Father is eternal. The Spirit is eternal. The Son is eternal with no beginning and no end. Today I have begotten you. Now, did Jesus take on human flesh at a certain point in time? Yes, He did. But He was the only begotten of His kind who was the Son of God and the Son of Man who was truly God and truly man. Nobody else has ever fit that description and nobody else ever will. So yes, He came forth at a certain point in time in a human form, but Jesus always existed. He's the only begotten. He is eternal. Angels were created. When God said, let there be, in somewhere in there, and we don't have the account of it in Genesis, somewhere in there, angels were created. And who did that creating we saw last week? The Word. Jesus. Okay? So Jesus created angels. So He's greater. He's superior to angels. You're worshiping angels, you crazy Hebrews. Worship the one who made them instead of them. Again, He's not just unique, but He's superior to created beings. Which is what we'll say in, see in verses 7 to 9 where the writer contrasts again what has been said about God the Son with what is said about angels. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. All right, now, everybody give me one of these. 
Crack your knuckles. Screw on your thinking cap. <sighs> and help me, Lord. Okay. So the first verse that we have there, uh, back in verse 7, that's from, write this down, Psalm 104, verse 4. The writer of Hebrews is quoting this part of this psalm to help show the role and a kind of description of angels which he will contrast with Jesus as the Son again in verses 8 and 9. But so of the angels, it says that he, God, makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, oh boy. It is important to note here, as I've seen in a lot of different commentaries and heard in some of the messages that I listen to on this text, if you look up Psalm 104 verses 3 to 4 in your ESV Bible, this is what it says. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot, speaking of God. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Or a flaming fire. Okay? But now watch this. The new revised standard version says this. You set the beams of your chambers on the waters. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. You make the winds your messengers. Fire and flame your ministers. Now what's the difference there? And why does it matter? Well, if you read the RSV, the NRSV actually, the translators there translate this passage as God being in nature and making nature His servant. He makes the winds His messengers and fire and flame His ministers. I forgot the E on flame there. It says flam. But anyway, you don't need to know that. But the ESV says His messengers are made winds. And his ministers are made of flaming fire. Now again, squint. Everybody squint like you're thinking real hard. And think about this for a second. The question I'm asking is, by these two different translations, are the messengers winds or are the winds messengers? Are the ministers of flaming fire or are fire and flame as ministers? Well, listen to this note from commentator Derek Kinder. Quote, This verse according to the RSV and most modern versions, continues to glory in nature as God's instrument. But, and here's that word again, the Septuagint takes the sentence the other way around, looking beyond the natural order to the heavenly host who makes his messengers or angels winds and his ministers, angels, a flaming fire. Kinder goes on to say, this suits the Hebrew word order better, and Hebrews 1.7 quotes it with this meaning. Kinder says that Briggs says, as God himself is conceived as really present in nature, wrapping himself in light, setting up his tent in the heavens, so his angels are made to assume the form of winds and lightnings. And Kinder completes it by saying, not that this is always their form, but the storm wind and flashing fire in which the cherubim were manifested in Ezekiel show this. But the argument, he says, in Hebrews 1.7 is that while angels can be described in these lowly terms, wind and fire, the Son is addressed as God. Okay, you're like, what in the world? Okay, two big things here. And I say big things. These are big things. 
First, he mentioned, and we mentioned before, the Septuagint. Who is that? What is that is the better question. I'm just being silly. So listen, if you don't know this, and I'd say a lot of you do, some of you may not. The Septuagint is the Old Testament translated from Hebrew and Aramaic into the Greek language. The original Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And while those languages were dominant within the Jewish Hebrew people for so long, remember, these Hebrews, these Jewish people got exiled and returned and exiled and returned and they got ran over by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And so they got assimilated into the culture. And when the Greeks took over, they Hellenized. That don't mean they sent everybody to Helen, because if you go to Helen, there's nobody there, y'all. Um, they Hellenized the whole world, the known world at that time, which means they incorporated their language, their ways, into the cultures that they conquered. And what do you think Greek people spoke? Greek, right. Okay, so... After so many foreign oppressors, after so much of the Jewish population was assimilated into the culture, like the rest of the civilized world, these Jews started speaking Greek, sometimes in addition to Hebrew and Aramaic, sometimes exclusively. It was a uniting language spoken in the Greek and the Roman empires. And what I want you to understand here is this. Listen to me. This is, I think this is so crazy important. God preserved His Word in this translation process. God made sure that what He had said to and through the history of the Hebrews, what we saw last last week in various ways and many ways, He spoke through the prophets. God made sure that what was said to those prophets and what was written down in Hebrew or Aramaic was correctly conveyed when it got translated into Greek. Which makes the Septuagint very important. And I think we overlook it and miss it. Not that any of us read Greek, but that Greek Old Testament has been translated into English too. So God was overseeing that. I found this on the website BibleArchaeology.com. That is not an endorsement of that website. I didn't explore any farther than this paragraph, okay? Listen. Quote, The very first translation of the Hebrew Bible was made into Greek probably as early as the 3rd century B.C. This, the so-called Septuagint, translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek is traditionally dated to the reign of Ptolemy II Philadelphus of Egypt around 285 to 246 B.C. It is commonly called the Septuagint version from the Latin word for 70 because according to the traditional account of its origin... Preserved in the so-called letter of Aristeus, which I have not read personally, it had 72 translators. This letter tells how King Ptolemy II commissioned the royal librarian Demetrius of Phaleron to collect by purchase or by copying all the books in the world. <laughs> That's a different day and time, huh? He wrote a letter to Eliezer, the high priest at Jerusalem, requesting six elders of each tribe, in total 72 men, six times 12, of exemplary life and learned in the Torah to translate it into Greek. Stay with me. On arrival at Alexandria, the translators were greeted by the king and given a sumptuous banquet. They were then closeted in a secluded house on the island of Pharos, 
close to the seashore where the celebrated 110 meter high lighthouse, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, had just been finished. Last sentence. According to the letter of Aristeus, the translation made under the direction of Demetrius was completed in 72 days. 72 translators, 72 days, Septuagint means 70. I guess they just rounded down. I don't know. And I guess Septuagint 2 didn't fit. I don't know. Septuagint, I don't know. So that's the first thing that I want you to know. God oversaw this process when his word was being translated from Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek. Now, the second thing I want you to see in this is that the New Testament writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Yes. Authoritative, aggressive, yes. As such, the New Testament writers help us understand parts of the Old Testament in their given interpretation of the passages they quote from the Old Testament. Read the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew brings some stuff up that I'm thinking, I would have never translated that Old Testament prophecy this way. But Matthew does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the writer of Hebrews uses this passage in Psalm 104 to contrast Jesus with what? Nature? Wind and fire? No, he's contrasting Jesus to angels, which means the proper translation of Psalm 104 is that he makes his messengers winds and and his ministers flaming fire. So does that mean the RSV got it wrong? Yeah, I think it did. Because the inspired New Testament writer says it means this. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You're like, well, who the cares, right? It's very important. Okay? Which I think, again, gives some gravitas to the Septuagint, and we need to look into that more, but that's that's for a different time and different place. So using this logic, the text in Psalm 104 is referring to angels, which is how the Septuagint translated the Hebrew or Aramaic into Greek. I think we would do well to dig into the Septuagint. It's online. You get it's it's like 2,000 years old. You, it's public domain. To help give us some light on some Old Testament passages. But we've got to move on right now. So this all started with verse 7 talking about angels being created things compared with wind and fire. But verses 8 and 9, which I have lost my place. There we go. Verses 8 and 9 uh, speak of the sun, right? But of the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the will of gladness beyond your companions. Well, that's a mouthful. And what that is, write this down. It's a conglomeration of Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And actually included in there are some thoughts and some wording from Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. Psalm 45, 6 to 7, and Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. And the point is this. While angels are created things like wind and fire, the sun is mentioned as having a throne. The sun is called, O God. His throne, the sun's throne, is forever and ever. It's a throne of eternal righteousness. The scepter or display of its greatness is uprightness. The sun loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So God has anointed the sun with the oil of gladness beyond his companions or anyone else for that matter. 
And all of this is pointing to Jesus as the Son of God and the King of God's kingdom. God has anointed the Son as King. And Jesus has done righteously and loved uprightness. Scepters and anointing, those, that's king language. And God has given the scepter to an angel? No. He's given a scepter to rule and the anointing oil showing this is the person I have chosen to be king. God has given that to Jesus the Son. Therefore, the Son is not created. He's not an angel, but is superior in many ways as the eternal king of the forever kingdom of God. So much more than a wind or a flame. But wait, there's more. Mm, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. And you, O Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. Now remember, we're seeing what has been said, quote, of the Son. That's what verses 8 and 9 we're talking about. And here in verse 10, we start with the word and. So, so the Son is also said, what is also said about the Son is this. You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a garment. But you are the same. Like a garment, they will be changed. Sorry. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. Now this is a reference. Write this down. To Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. Now this is a majestic panorama citing both the facts of God's creating the heavens and the earth and God's eternality contrasted with the temporary nature of the created things. There is a call to wonder at the creation, wow, this is awesome, but even more a call to wonder at the temporal nature of it compared to God's eternality. And again, it's being directed at God the Son. Jesus is the Creator, like we saw in last week's messages. He laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of His hands. And as amazing and as wonderful as the heavens and the earth are in their glory, their glory is not the same as the glory of the One who created them. Anytime we sing a song or I see it that says, you hold the whole world in your hands. I want to laugh. This tiny little speck of dust floating through this vast universe like God's going, oh, oh, I got it. Yeah, right. You know, it's not like he's struggling. No, no, no. The writer of Hebrews is saying, he created everything. Don't look at creation and go, oh, wow, creation is majestic and wonderful. Let's worship creation. He's saying, look at creation and go, somebody created all this. How awesome must that person be? He laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of His hands. And the glory of that created is not the same as the glory of the one that created it. They will perish. They will wear out like a garment. They will be rolled up like a robe. Changed like a garment. But at the destruction of all things, Christ will remain. 
He will be the one rolling up the robe. He is the same, inferring that He is always the same, and His years will have no end. Now just take a deep breath for a second and take that in. Listen, Jesus, the Creator and Sustainer of all things, will also dissolve it all, like Peter had referenced when we went through Second Peter. The One who existed before it all, who created it all, will undo it all and then redo it all which is not referenced here. And before it all, through it all, and in the new all, Jesus is the uncaused cause of everything else. You're like, yeah, I know that. But do you? Do I? Ain't no angel that can say that or have that said about them. Only Jesus. And the writer gives one more, and to which of the angels' statement in verse 13. We're almost there, y'all. And to which of the angels has he ever said, has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's a quote from Psalm. Write this down. 110, verse 1. And actually, let's look at that actual verse. Psalm 110, he, he takes out a piece of it. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now there's not a much more blatant example in the Bible of an intra-Godhead communication than this right here. David, writing this psalm, communicates a communique between God and God. One God, three persons. The Father and the Son. The Lord, that all capital letter Lord, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. Did y'all get my... Yahweh. I, I did that <laughs> really good. <laughs> get over here. Yahweh. I shouldn't say the name Yahweh lightly. It's very important. That is I Am. The name that God gave Moses at the burning bush to tell the Hebrews if they asked who sent Moses. When you see that all capital Lord, that means in the original language, it was Yahweh. The second Lord there... One capital and the rest small letters is the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. <laughs> Actually, it means Lord of Lords. That's the literal rendering of Adonai. So, read it this way. I am, says to the Lord of Lords, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Father says to the Son, rest, repose. Sit down, which we know last week that he did, right? He was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And how long will Jesus be seated there? Until the Father makes all of Jesus' enemies Jesus' footstool. Puts them under his feet in final, total defeat. Have y'all seen that yet? We have not seen that yet, but we will. And Jesus is sitting down until then. To which of the angels has God ever said that? That's right. None of them. So then what has God said to or about angels? Well, the Bible says a lot, but the writer of Hebrews just mentions one thing here in the last verse we'll cover. 114. Are they not all the angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. My goodness gracious. Well, after seeing all these things that God has never said to an angel, 
We get a quick glance at what angels actually are, what they actually do, in contrast to the eternal, creating, reigning, ruling Son of God. They, the angels, are they not all ministering spirits? So angels are spirits. They're spiritual beings. I think we're okay with that, right? To be in the presence of God, they would have to be spirits. Now, (laughs) there won't be any human bodies in God's presence until the resurrection. Well, that's not true. Because Jesus is in a human body in the presence of God right now. But He's the only one. Everybody else that has passed away, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when it talks about the resurrection, it says the bodies of the saints will come out of the graves and then they'll be reunited with their spirits. So right now you've got a bunch of disembodied spirits in God's presence except for Jesus. And I don't know how Enoch and Elijah work into that. Maybe there's three human bodies in God's... I don't know, okay? The point is this. When I die, if I expired right now, God bless me, my body would lay right here, my spirit would go into the presence of God. That's a great hope that I have. Okay? So why am I saying that? Angels are spirits. They don't have human bodies. Can they manifest themselves looking like humans? It appears so from the Scripture. Right? But to be in the presence of God, they have to be spirits. And these spirits are said to be ministering spirits. That word ministering means relating to the performance of service. Well, who or what are they serving? Well, obviously they serve God, but how are they serving God? They're sent out to serve, listen, (laughs) for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Now, okay, so listen. God created angels for a purpose. Obviously, like everything He created, me, you, dogs, snails, blades of grass, quarks, stars, supernovas, oceans, bacteria, everything was created for His glory. Okay? That's a given. But, how is God going to be most glorified? Well, as we have said so many times recently, God's eternal plan to bring Him the most glory supernaturally possible, His plan would be to save human beings from their sins. God's plan was to create a universe where His creation would rebel against Him and He would send His only Son to die on a cross on a tiny little speck of dust somewhere in the Milky Way galaxy so that the sins of the people that God chose to save would be forgiven and they could spend eternity with Him by grace. That was God's eternal plan. Sounds like foolishness to man, right? Well, in that plan... There were beings created. We call them angels, and they have a part to play. And it turns out they are sent to serve those people that God has chosen to save. To serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Kind of like God chose to speak to His people through prophets, like what we saw in last week's passage. In the same way, God chose to have servants, angels, that He would send in order to minister to the people that God would save. And He called them angels. They're messengers. And they have carried messages to people, God's people, right? We saw last week that an angel named Gabriel was sent to a virgin named Mary to let her know what God was about to do to bring about the birth of Jesus through her body. Daniel got messages from an angel who mentioned being helped by an angel named Michael. 
That angel mentioned to Daniel that he was helped by an angel named Michael. And Michael is called the prince of your people to Daniel. By the way, besides Gabriel and Michael, two other angels are ever named in the Bible. In Revelation, there's an angel named Abaddon or Apollyon, which means the destroyer. Who's the other angel named? Lucifer. And we do see what is called the angel of the Lord all through the Old Testament bringing messages to many people. But all in all, we don't have a lot of messages that say an angel said this, an angel transmitted this. So all these angels, and there are apparently, scripturally, myriads and myriads of them, and we have a handful of messages sent or brought by them that we know of. What's going on here? Why so many angels? Why are they messengers? And why are there so few messages? Right? I mean, like, send me a message, God. That would be fantastic. Let Gabriel knock on my door. Hey, Jason, God wanted you to know. Thank you very much, Gabriel. I appreciate your service. That would be awesome. But that's not what's going on, right? If it is going on, talk to me. I'm a mental health professional. And we can <laughs> dig into that with you. So, how else might these ministers, these servants, these messengers serve humanity? Serve saved humanity specifically, by the way. I think Albert Moeller sums this up very well in his statement from his commentary on this verse. He says, quote, Both the Old and the New Testament make clear that angels are creations of God. While they may have distinct privileges and even extraordinary powers, they are by no means divine. Angels reside in the heavenly assembly and are part of the throng worshiping before the throne of God. Saints and angels we sang earlier. The Bible also indicates that angels are messengers of God and that they carry out His purposes. The angels function as witnesses of major redemptive historical events such as the birth of Christ. They are also agents of God's justice. After the fall, God placed an angel with a flaming sword at the border of the Garden of Eden to exact vengeance on anyone who would try to eat from the tree of life. That's at Genesis 3. Revelation, Moeller goes on to say, indicates that Christ will lead an angelic army in the last day to execute his last judgment on the world. Hebrews 1.14, which we're talking about here, which is where this came from, obviously, underscores the glorious reality that for those of us who believe in Christ, angels are sent from God's throne room to work for the good of the church. We may not know exactly how angels are engaged in spiritual warfare on behalf of the church, but we can be confident, I love this, that these agents of God's throne are sent out for that very purpose. God works all things for the good of His church. This includes the ministry of angels. End of quote. So what's that mean? That means we really don't know what they're doing. But we know they're doing it. God sent them and it's for our good. So let's worship them, right? No! No, don't do that! Don't worship them. What's the point of all this? Worship Him for sending them. Because as great as that is, as great as what they are and what they're doing, guess what, y'all? Jesus is better. That's the point of this whole passage today. As great as angels are, and they're pretty awesome, they pale in comparison to the Son of God. So we are to worship Him, not them. Now, let's go to application. And I... Remember, homework, look up those psalms and see what you see about Jesus in them. That's kind of the main point of the homework. Homework work you should do at home. 
before you get back here next week. Feel free to put something up on the Facebooks too about it. That'd be great. We can start conversations about it. I think we can read this passage and go, yep, okay. We cannot think about angels because I don't see them. I don't really know what they're doing, so what's it matter? I think it's important to know that there are angels. They are ministers that God sends to serve us and to help us. That's important. But in light of the passage, the whole point of the passage is let's worship Jesus, not angels. And so we go, well, I don't worship angels. I would never worship angels. So really, what's this got to do with me? Three M's. Maker, message, master. Maker, message, master. I'm going to infer from this passage, and I don't like to infer a lot of things, but I'm going to, I'm going to look at three things. Maker, message, master. First is maker. And what I want to infer from that and, and, and help us apply is that we have got to understand, and don't just say, oh yeah, I get that. The Creator is greater than the creation. There is a grave danger among human beings of which we are all one, I guess. I'm looking for antenna or something out there. There is a grave danger in human beings worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. And that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. What do we say that we love? And I'm not saying don't say these things. I love pizza. It's killing me. Not so slowly, I might add. I love the rain. I was coming in today and it was raining. I was like, oh man, nice. I love to sleep. The Bible says don't do that. Struggle with that one, y'all. I love my family. I love you guys. Oh. And that's all right and good. That's fine. But if that love doesn't point us to the one who created these things, we're misappropriating the creation. Because the creation is to point us to a creator. And it is our maker that we are to worship. You don't think it's a danger? Romans 1, 24-25. Therefore, read Romans 1 this week too. Therefore God gave them up, these bad people, and all of us, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And if you know how Romans 1 ends up, it's really bad. And the point is, human beings chose to worship the creature instead of the Creator. The writer of Hebrews is saying angels are creatures of God. Don't worship them. Let them in their service and their ministry point you to Him and worship Him. So let Pete's appointment to Jesus. That's a good thing. Can I get an amen? It tastes good. I enjoy it. I can enjoy it. I can chew it. I can eat it. I can taste it. It can burn the roof of my mouth and I can say glory when it does. Amen. amen. Come on. Y'all say Pastor Jason's preaching real good. That's my favorite joke, by the way. Once a month or so. I can use the things that God has created, look at them, enjoy them, 
even kind of revel in glory in them as long as I'm doing it and saying, God, thank you for this. Why do we stop and say thanks for our food before we eat it? Because we're supposed to worship the maker, the creator, and not the creature. I love this. We're just going to read this real quick. I wish we had time to cover more of this. We don't. Psalm 8. Oh Lord, all capitals, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings right now and crowned him, man, with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Look at it all. Enjoy it all. And say, God, you are awesome. That's the point of maker. Maker now message. Oh my goodness, y'all. What a message we have. And let me say this, the message is greater than the messengers. The the Creator is greater than the creation. The message is greater than the messengers. Y'all, we have the Gospel. A treasure entrusted to us. These earthen vessels, we carry this precious treasure... And the gospel is the story of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to save His people. And we celebrate it every week, thank God, as we remember and proclaim His death. Paul says this to the Corinthians. For when one says, I follow Paul, a messenger, and another, I follow Paulus, a messenger, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants! through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And that growth comes through what? The message. The messengers bring the message and then God does stuff. It's what Josh said this morning. We try to change hearts, we're going to mess it up. We trust God as we preach the message to see Him change hearts. Ah, the message. And the giver of the message is what's important here. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn receive, in which you also stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. And one of the most famous passages about this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says in Romans 1, 16, 17. It, listen, the gospel is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, in the message, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Exalt the message. Not the messenger. Not me. Not a preacher. Oh, we become fans of preachers. Please don't be my fan. I don't want you to be my fan. I don't want you to be a fan of John Piper. I don't want you to be a fan of Al Mohler. We're just messengers. But hopefully the message comes through and the message is much greater than the messengers. Make our message and finally, Master. 
The Creator is greater than the creation. The message is greater than the messengers. And the Master is greater than the servants. We should live in awe of the person and the work and the Word of Jesus Christ. If you saw an angel, we said at the beginning, you'd be tempted to fall down and worship it. It. I call angels it because I don't know. They don't merit. Anyway. The Apostle John was tempted by that. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard it and saw them, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. He's like, no, dog, don't do that. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. Oh my. And your comrades, the prophets. Angels are Russian, obviously. Your comrades, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. The angels know what's going on. They know their place. We need to know their place and understand that they point us, they're servants of, they're messengers of the Master. The whole point of this whole passage is that angels are an awesome part of God's plan, but even they, in all their awesomeness, do not in any way come close to comparing to Jesus, the Master, in all of His Son of God glory. Jesus is superior to angels. He's more than a messenger. He is the message. It's all about Him telling us about Him and His work and His glory. Imagine a person of importance going and speaking himself instead of sending a messenger. Or even sending His Son. That's exactly what we get in Jesus. God wrapping Himself in human flesh and saying, I'll explain it to you Myself. And you need to know that I am the Master. So you want an angel to follow you around? you got something better. We've got Jesus. The Son of God the King of kings, the Lord of all lords who has done for you what no angel or no other man or no other part of creation could ever do for you. Last passage. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through Him and for Him. We read that last week. He Himself is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, God was pleased to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, anything in creation, by making peace through the blood of His your master is your savior. We finish with this. We fall down. We lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. And we cry, holy, holy, holy. All the saints adore thee. Casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim. Falling down before thee. Which wert and art and evermore shall be. I see the Lord. He is seated on the throne. The train of His robe is filling the heavens. I see the Lord. He's shining like the sun. His eyes full of fire. His voice like the waters. Surrounding His throne are thousands singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
Holy King, Almighty Lord, saints and angels all adore. I join with them and bow before Jesus, only Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we worship this morning Jesus. And we give you glory because of and through Jesus. Our God, our Maker, our Savior, our Lord, our brother, our friend. The one who reigns forever. He is a friend of mine. And his name is Jesus. Only Jesus. God, if there be anybody here who does not know Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you speak and give them life that they might believe, see a need to have their sins forgiven and look to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Believing that his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his spilled blood, his broken body are sufficient to remove every stain from every sinner that would come to him by faith. Help us, God, to believe this. Help us to live it out and do it in the power that you provide. And we ask it in the strong name of Jesus. We say amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.